You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here once again. For those who are new, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the members here, part of the leadership team and also occasional preacher. So if you don't like today's programming, it will come back in normal two weeks time. I'll be here next week to, to wrap up this series, but please put up with me in the meantime. Um, we are going through this series on the book of Ecclesiastes, a series that is very special to me uh, because it's such a um, such a unique book in the Bible that was really rewarding for me to do a deep dive into this book and, and really life-changing as well. So I hope some of this will come across and inspire you to also take up the challenge of reading this book for yourself. It's not a long book, but it's a very challenging and sometimes hard uh, book to, to read and understand. So the first week was all about how to understand the book. If you're jumping midway through the series, I encourage you to go and maybe um, listen to that sermon again or for the first time, but we'll try to make things easy as we go. And it, we've called it Disconstructing Life Under the Sun because really what the book of Ecclesiastes does is to question our assumptions of how, what it means to live life well. And today's message somehow is connected to YouTube algorithms. So start and finish with YouTube algorithms, and I hope you see uh, the connection between that and Ecclesiastes. I think it was a very helpful one for me to understand YouTube. But why, why do I want to start with that? You know how YouTube algorithms work, right? It's that algorithm behind the, the, the curtains that sort of, oh, you've seen this video, so these are some other videos that you might like to watch. And last year, we were looking to buy our first car after we had our uh, first kid. So I was, you know, Googling some cars, looking at car reviews on YouTube, and I got some useful recommendations such as, these are the top 10 minivans for your family, right? Like, thank you, YouTube. That's, uh, that's fine. I will watch this. This is very relevant to my life. Um, we didn't buy a minivan. We got a smaller car, but it was fun, you know, fun to, to watch all of those things and get a good idea of what the market looks like. Uh, but earlier this year, I joined the company. Um, for those who don't know, I did my PhD in mechanical engineering here at UFT. Uh, and earlier this year, I joined an aerospace company that does, among other things, jet engines for private jets. So, as you can expect, and I'm not too familiar with private jets. So I had to, you know, go on YouTube and Google and, and look a little bit, you know, how they work, what they look like. So to see where our products are going. Um, and then eventually YouTube started suggesting to me, here are the top 10 private jets for your family. <laughs> I was like, YouTube, you don't know me. I collect PC points. I'm not getting a private jet anytime soon. Unless you can get one with PC points. Otherwise, then I will be very close to getting one. Uh, but, why I'm saying that is that with that video, you know, here are the top 10 private jets for your family to buy. Um, I started receiving a lot of other videos like what it feels like to fly this private jet, what it feels like to go uh, fly first class, what it feels like to go in this expensive restaurant or go to this exclusive vacation that only rich people can do. And then I was made aware of how much of YouTube is people doing what only the rich can do and sharing that with everyone else so everyone can see what it feels like to go in expensive places, expensive restaurants fly expensive planes, sports car, and whatnot. And it really feels like when you're watching that, you're like, you know, my life would be better if I 
flew first class instead of economy or business. My life would be better if I had a sports car rather than a minivan or a commuter car. My life would be better if I could dine out on that restaurant rather than on this cheap eat. And it, we feel like maybe we're missing out on something, you know? Maybe these people are happier because they get to have enjoy all that luxury, that comfort, those very exclusive experiences in life. And it's very attractive. Like you want to keep watching, you know, what does, how it feels like to do like a, you know, a first class on Singapore Airlines. Like that looks, that um, feels like a dream, you know, like if you've done long flights and you see how first class flies, like, yes, my life would be better if I had those things in my life as well. And then... Whether you are aware of it or not, you are already automatically answering the question of what does make life good? What does it mean to live life well? When we watch those things and we feel like I would rather have that than, you know, fly the way that I fly or have the car that I have or go to the places that I go. But that raises the question, what is a good life? You know, if I were to tell you, uh, in one year from now, I can see your future, never mind where I got my crystal ball, but you will be living the good life. What picture comes to mind? What is the good life that you want to live? You know, some people might, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is like a life of no work or easy work and full of pleasures and comforts and luxuries, or maybe a life of, you know, work accomplishments and achievements, maybe a life uh, traveling around the world, experimenting things, learning things, maybe a life of adventures and thrills and adrenaline, or a life of great passions and romance and relationships, or maybe just a life of fun, you know, like having fun every day, and, and that's it. All these, they sound very different, right? Like maybe someone is drawn only to the romance and someone only to the adventures or only to the comfort. But all of them are variations of the same answer. A life, a good life is measured by what we experience in life. A good life is a life of good experiences. It's the bucket list kind of life, right? Like I want to experience these things before I die. These movies, these restaurants, these foods, these places to visit. Because life is full when you are, when it is full of good experiences. It's the YouTube kind of life. You know, you see everyone having those experiences. You envy them, envy them and you wish that you could be the one, you know, earning your living, doing those fun things and pleasure, uh, pleasant things in life. But what if experience is the wrong stick that we use to measure life's goodness? This is the question that the teacher, this character in the book of Ecclesiastes, wants to raise for us. So let's read what the teacher has to say about this. And just to give some context, remember that this book is a speech by someone who convened people to talk about the meaning of life. And this is his exploration of all the dead ends that we find ourselves in by, as we try to find meaning and a fulfilling life. So let's read chapter 2 today. I said to myself, says the teacher, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplished. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom so I wasn't out of control. I could still write down, you know, my thoughts and my conclusions about what I was going through. I wanted to see what it was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks, and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. 
I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. And wish it could finish here, right? Like it's, It sounds amazing. What a great life. Yet, I, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. There are two things to understand what he's saying that, again, were part of the first sermon, but it's a good thing to remind ourselves. This meaningless word is the Hebrew word hevel, which means a vapor, a mist, you know, something that you cannot really make sense of. It's mysterious. It's, uh, it vanishes. It's not really concrete. It's not substantial. So it's really frustrating as you try to grasp it and understand what it is. Sometimes it's... Uh, translated as meaningless or vanity or mysterious. And he uses these words under the sun and under the heavens often because his method of exploring what gives life meaning is, first of all, to only consider what is part of our earthly lives and from a completely earthly perspective, not, you know, trying to see from any other perspective or considering anything that we do not experience on our own, no revelation, no God um, to make sense of life. And this, his conclusion is, by this method, even all the pleasures in the world, even all the accomplishments, even all the comfort, all the luxury, all the sex, all the fun, even then I had all everything, everything was hevel. Everything was just nothing at the end. It didn't accomplish anything. And, you know, we've heard this before, right? And especially coming from Hollywood stars. We've heard many of them say, I have everything in life and I'm still miserable. And especially from Hollywood, because really when they're famous, they get everything that they want. Um, I hope with those warnings, you know, we take heed of that because they have oftentimes what we are chasing and they, they say, I have it. I'm not happy. I'm warning you because very likely you won't be happy either. And I hope it works, but sometimes it doesn't because, you know, if you're like me, you might think, but that's their problem. You know, it's them. It's not the thing. Who's to say that if I had that, I wouldn't enjoy it? Who's to know? Like, maybe they have something wrong in their psyche. Maybe the way that they grew up. Maybe they are depressive so for some reason. They can't enjoy it. But who's to say that if I had all the, in the fame, the money, the sex, the travels, the experiences, I wouldn't be happy. Why should I take them uh, in for their authority? You know? It, it's at least worth a shot, right? If the choice is, be, is between being poor and miserable or rich and miserable, I'll rather be rich and miserable, right? Because I've tried poor and miserable, it sucks, might as well give a shot to the other one. So who's to say it wouldn't be better? So sometimes we hear those warnings and say, ah, I think I'll still try it, you know, and see for myself if I won't be happy if I had everything that I, I've ever dreamed of. So we, we might hear Ecclesiastes as the same kind of warning, just like 
Some guy got everything in life. He's still miserable. Who's to say that I wouldn't be happy if I had the things that he had? But even though this is a, just a short passage, the more we read this book over and over, we see that he's not, he doesn't want to convince you based on his authority alone, just because he's been there and tasted it and it wasn't good, so you shouldn't try. But he gives us good reasons to trust him, and he explains why is it that even if we had everything, we wouldn't be happy just like he wasn't when he got everything. So if we want to disagree with him, it's not because, oh, I would have been different. We really, we really want to take, you know, his entire argument into context and say, yeah, maybe the world isn't like that. But why is it that he says that experiences are not enough to make our life good, worth living, lived well, and fulfilling? During the first sermon, we discuss two ingredients to make life meaningful, right? People discuss, oh, the meaning of life is up, up for each person to define for themselves. But even if that were to be the case, I'm not saying it is, but even if it were to be the case, uh, for life to be meaningful at all in the first place, we would need at least two ingredients in life to say, well, that was a meaningful life. First, we need to make some sense of life. If we cannot explain anything in life, if things are not connected, if they don't come up to a coherent whole, then life really lacks a meaning. It's like a vapor. You can't define, you can't grasp, you can't say what it is. And if you can't say what your life is, you know, how you got here and where you're going, then doesn't matter how many experiences you have, still life wouldn't be meaningful. And experiences by themselves don't give you any sense in life. Experiences are just disconnected events. If anything, they fragmentize life because they pull you on all these different directions. They're all in the moment. They never come up to a coherent whole on their own. So if all you're doing is jumping from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure to pleasure or comfort to comfort to comfort, at the end of the day, you look back and life still makes no sense how you got where you are or where you should go from them from there. A life that is just about events is not about anything. It lacks coherence that gives life meaning. And not only that, but the other thing that we were discussing in the first week is that for our life to be meaningful at all, we need to make some difference, right? It doesn't need to, oh, I need to change the world, but make some difference in the lives and in the world around us. Because if we look back and said, say, well, everything would have been the same had I not tried to do anything of that, had I not existed, then life would be meaningless, right? Because what's the point of doing anything if everything is de determined, determined by things that you do not do? And experiences, again, are just things that we experience on our, you know, on our own, or our own individuality we experience in those things. We are not affecting the world around us. So if you live for yourself, at the end of the day, you will look back and conclude, I didn't make a difference in the world. The world would have been exactly the same had it not existed. And that's a very, very harsh thought. But that's a thought that the teacher is not afraid to consider as he explores the different things that we fool ourselves with as we try to find meaning in life. And there is one more thing. And this is a very important theme throughout the book that I, we, I wish we had a lot more time to unpack. It relates to how we relate with time 
We are creatures of time, and time is such a central topic in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is a lot to unpack. We won't have time to do that today. But I, I'm pretty sure that one of the most famous passages, you know, there's a time for everything under the heavens. Most people know it. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes because time is such an important topic for the teacher. And the thing is, and this is something that the teacher finds out throughout the book, experiences by themselves do not reconcile us with time. And we need to be reconciled with time. There is no such thing as living only in the present ever. We always live with a past, in the present, and for a future. Always. doesn't matter if, you know, I'm getting up because I'm expecting to be in church today, so the future is just two hours from now, or I'm leaving this venue and going outside because I know there is food, so it's only 30 minutes from now, or I'm studying for this exam because I'm projecting my future, my career in 10 years from now. We are always living for a future, either a few seconds or a few years. We are always thinking about the future, otherwise we wouldn't take any action at all. And we're always living with a past as well, because we have to go from our memories and what we know about who we are to be able to make any decisions at all. So there is no such thing as living only in the present. So as long as we are at odds with time, no experience will fix that. If we are at odds with our past because of our hurts and traumas and guilt, then no experience will make us forget that. And not only that, but we are always living in consideration of what's coming. And as long as we are anxious about or fearful of the future, we cannot enjoy the present, doesn't matter how good experience is. There's a very uh, famous story from the, uh, that dates all the way back to the Greeks about King Damocles, and some of you might know the name. Uh, and King Damocles was a very powerful uh, man. I forgot what city or kingdom he was a king of, might have been Crete, I don't remember. But he was a very powerful man with a lot of advisors around him. And one night, in during a banquet, during a feast with a lot of things going on, one of his advisor, advisors was really flattering him and say, King Damocles, you are such a great man. It must be, you know, amazing to live your life and to enjoy all the things that you have. So Damocles said, you want to know exactly how it is to live like me? Let's swap places for just tonight, and you will see. And he was like, oh, of course. Of course we'll swap places with you. So he swapped places. He dressed the advisor in kingly clothes, put him on the throne, and told everyone, serve him as you would serve me. He is your king for tonight. But there's one more thing, advisor. And then he took a very sharp and big sword and hanged above the head of the advisor with a single horse's head and said, this is this. This is what it feels to be like me. And do you think that that guy could enjoy the night and all the food and all the women around him? Very soon he said, King Damocles, please, can we swap places again? I don't want to be here anymore. The point of Damocles was to say to him, you know, to be in my position, I made a lot of enemies. So I'm always vulnerable. I'm always fearful. I'm always anxious about scummy. You think I'm enjoying it life and I have everything, but I can't because of all the anxiety and fear of the future that I have based on the things that I had to do to get here. And for us, it doesn't mean that we've made enemies and we are afraid of them, but it means that doesn't matter how good the experience is, as long as we are anxious about what's coming, what is near, what we can't control and could happen at any time, no experience can make us forget that. 
And this point that there is something coming stronger than you that you can't control and could hit you at any time, it's one of the main points of Ecclesiastes. He says over and over that we are at the mercy of chance and luck and fortune. We can't control it. That time is relentless and leaves everyone behind and determines what happens to you, not the things that you do. That nature is a much stronger force than you are and that also will drive your life. And that death overcomes everyone at any time could be you. Very cheerful thoughts, I know. But it's sobering. It's sobering because experiences are very good at sedating us, making us forget these things. We know deep inside that we are at the mercy of chance and time and nature and death. And no wonder that we seek all these experiences because they promise to us, you can live in the present. You can forget all these things, but they have a short shelf life and they go away and we go to that depressive mood again because we haven't yet been reconciled with time. We've only sedated ourselves to forget about time. So if not experience, if a good life is not a life just full of good experiences, what could then make life good? What does it mean to live well? Before I get to the teacher's answers, I want to tell you one answer that it's not the right answer. And that's because almost everyone who finds the frustrating nature of a life of comfort and pleasure goes then to this answer, and that is, Life is not about experiencing things. Life is about being a good person. It's the life of morality. That's always the second answer that everyone tries. And I wish we had an entire sermon to say, to talk about why this is also not the answer. I mean, it's a step in the right direction because at least you're not living for yourself. You might do stuff for other people. It's better, but it's not the answer. It's not going to be fulfilling. It's not going to make your life meaningful. Again, I wish we had a lot more time to unpack, but just to give a very quick summary of a few points that the book makes about, you know, if you try to make your life worth living by being a good person, um, this is why it wouldn't work. First, because the more we live, the longer we live, the more we realize that we don't know what is the good thing that we should be doing. That a lot of things that we thought we were doing good were actually bad things, wrong things, or more harmful than we thought. So that's really frustrating. Second, all that we do is full of unintended consequences. You try to do something good and you create more harm than good by doing what you did. It would have been better had you not tried to do any good. And that's a very frustrating thought as well. And worst of everything, no one is rewarded for doing good. You think that maybe you will get people's admiration, maybe success in life or something by doing the right thing? No, life will suck for you as well, even as you try to do good. That's a three-point sermon for you in 30 seconds, but I wish we had more time to unpack all these things. But the teacher wants to tell you that even if you just, you know, try to make life worth living by being a good person, it would end up in hevel, in meaninglessness, in confusion. And no, to be honest, a lot of you might be here today because that's the step that you're trying now. Maybe you've lived long enough to say, my previous you know, life of just enjoying life was really miserable. I'll try to be good. I've heard that people go to church to be good. So this is why I'm here. Please teach me to be good because life sucks. It's not going to be the answer either. So if the life, if life is not about good experiences, not about being a good person, then what could life be about that would make it meaningful, fulfilling, and give us the satisfaction of living it? The teacher of Ecclesiastes only hints at a solution. Most of the book is about making sure that you understand all the dead ends. 
but the book is not all the message. But if ends the, it ends, it wrap-ups the message with someone who put together the speech and wrote a few concluding thoughts, and that person finishes with these two verses. Now all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. His conclusion is, I was wrong in trying to make sense of life by considering only what is earthly. I forgot the big picture. I forgot the bigger story that I'm a part of. When I consider that I am a creature of God and God has a will for me, now life starts to make a lot more sense and to be a lot more fulfilling. A life well lived is not one of experiences or one of being good, but a life lived according to the true story about finding the part that we play in that story and playing it well in obedience to the part that was given to us. We don't get the full story, the true story from the book of Ecclesiastes because it's not the entire revelation that God has for us. We have many other books in the Bible to help us understand the bigger picture. You know, Bart already preached the gospel once, so I'll preach it <laughs> once more. And we like to use this graphic because it really summarizes, might be, you know, overly simplified, but really summarizes what the big story is. We were made good by God. God made a good universe with a good intention for us. But we've rebelled. We've decided to be our own gods and say, I don't want anything to do with your will, God. And this is what we call the fall. This is where sin comes in, where evil comes in, and where where hurt and suffering comes in. But God didn't abandon us, even though he could have, because we kind of deserve it. Uh, but he had us a plan, and he had a plan from the beginning to redeem us through the cross, through his son, Jesus Christ. God made man who suffered in our place the penalties for our sin, so that we can all be free, and we can all be redeemed to God, and get closer again to that restoration of all things, which is coming, which is promised, and we can all be a part of that. This is the big story. This is the story of all of us. When we find ourselves in this story and find the part that God has for us to play in this story, life makes sense. We make a difference. We are reconciled with time. We are reconciled with our past, and we are not at the odds, at odds with the future anymore. Now we can actually enjoy experiences for what they are. To live in obedience to the true story doesn't replace having good life experiences. It redeems them. It puts them in the right place. I'm not saying, you know, you need to be a cranky old person that doesn't enjoy any pleasures or comforts in life because you live in obedience to God. What if obedience to God means also enjoying the things that he gives you in gratitude? That's also obedience to God. He wants us to give good things. It's not going to be a miserable, cranky life. It's going to be a happy, fulfilling one. When our experiences don't try to carry the burden of giving our lives meaning and making us happy, they are enhanced. We can finally really taste what they taste like. And this is something that throughout this, you know, almost depressive book of Ecclesiastes, over and over, the teacher really like comes through with what he really thinks about the matter with all these carpe diem passages of the book. One of them in chapter two, we read, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. 
This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. So life experiences will come. We don't have to chase them. We just enjoy them for what they are and don't put on their shoulders the burdens that they are not meant to carry. I would like to summarize the message with this, this one um, phrase that I think might help stick. We live well when we know what is God's will for our lives, live obediently to his call, and enjoy his many gifts, gifts and gratitude. It's not about being a good person. He would do good. Don't worry about it. It's not about being a good person. But when you live obediently to God, he wants to do good in the world. You would end up doing good, a lot more good than what you would do on your own based on what you think is good. And it's not about not having pleasure, not having comfort, not having life's experience, but having them for what they are. That's when you really taste what they taste like. So there are a few practical steps that I think we can all take uh, from this conclusion from the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, don't look for all the experiences that you're missing out as if they were, they would certainly make your life richer. Instead, look to learn what is God's will for your life. That will make your life richer. You know, there is a lot about God's will that is true for everyone. There's a lot of things in the Bible, principles to live by, things that we know that God loves, that we can love and chase as well. And there is also something unique about you because you are in a new, unique situation, circumstances that no one else is in, people that you know, places where you live, where you work, and God has a purpose for that as well. So to live in obedience to the call that is common to everyone and to the call that is unique to you, seek to know what those things are and live in obedience to that. Also, don't measure your life or other people's lives based on what you or they experience. That's a really good antidote to envy. Because if life is not about the experiences we have, even though they're good and we can taste them for what they are, we'll stop envying people that fly first class or have a sports car or go to dine in very expensive places that we cannot afford. How, what was the last time, and I say that for you, you know, who, who are Christians, who are following the Lord, how, what was the last time that you envied someone for being more obedient to God than you? We, we didn't do that often. And I wouldn't even call that envy. That would be being inspired by them and working, you know, letting that, you know, overflow into your life as well. That's the good thing to envy other people. Man, no, though, that person really lives in obedience and with the satisfaction of life that I would like to have. I want more of that in my life, not the experiences that, that they have. God is good. He will give me the experiences. I don't have to go, you know, chasing them. And that's, and that's the last practical step that we can take. Enjoy them for what they are. Don't chase experiences madly. You know, the next trip, the next movie, the next game, the next relationship, the next food, the next this, the next that, because the next one will be better, the next one will do it for you. They will never do that. Just enjoy them for what they are. Trusting that's not going to be the last time that you have something to enjoy. God is good, and he wants to give you good things. You know, and I want to finish with YouTube again. Because we've got to be careful with those algorithms, okay? Again, the, if we are, if we get stuck in that YouTube spiral, 
it's very easy to seep into our souls again the message that, yeah, but it would, it kind of would be better. My life would be better if I had this or that. And next thing you know, you're working towards those, th those things and hoping that they will be as fun as people advertise it. So just be careful. I'm not saying don't use YouTube, but be careful what, what might do to your soul. Okay. Because it's not neutral towards your soul. Okay, he has a certain inclination and tends to do certain things for us. Now, there was one thing that I remember today. I want to finish with this quote. I didn't have time to put it on a slide, but it's a famous quote by Christian author G.K. Chesterton that I, I think really summarizes what should be our relationship to life experiences. And he says this, You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play, and grace before I open a book. Grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Let's be grateful for everything, not just the big ones, the big life events, every small thing, and our ability to enjoy it comes from the hand of God. When we find the place that these experiences have, in the big and the true story. They will be what they were meant to be. And that's when life really gives us satisfaction. Amen? So let's pray. God, we thank you for the challenges that your words, your word brings to our lives. And we help, Lord, that we'll be humble to let our, these words shake up our lives and, and really deconstruct the false assumptions, the false hopes on which we've been building our lives, Lord. We pray that you continue to be generous, Lord, that we'll enjoy your gifts in gratitude for what they are, good gifts from your hand and the enjoyment that comes from your will, Lord, not as something that will carry on their shoulders the meaning of our lives. Our meaning and the meaning and the reason for our existence comes from you. So we pray, Lord, that you'll help us live through you and for you in all the things that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.